Humans make a lot of stuff. Just piles of stuff, and it's got to go somewhere. Some of it is treasured. There was nothing else like this on early television. Some of it is junked. They were totally indiscriminate on what they collected. Some of it is just forgotten about. There hasn't been a guess culturally that they matter. So they get thrown in the garbage. The only thing clear to me is that nothing lasts forever. It's over. It's ephemeral. Listen to Ephemeral now on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And learn more at ephemeral.show. Previously on Happy Face. I got a phone call and this guy says, I know where you're at. You're in the kitchen and you're wearing this. Keith states that he hired someone. My mom had just said that her and my dad were separating, which I didn't believe. I wanted to keep, like, you guys' baby pictures, and he chucked that all out. He wasn't exactly a faithful husband. Oh, absolutely not. Tell me about your wedding day. They were doing pictures of me, and I guess he was outside kissing the bridesmaids. My best friend. After the second murder, the happy face killer says, he realized he liked what he was doing. This triggered something in me, he says. It was getting easy, real easy. The first year with Melissa had went through two fires. Keith taped the vent. I had a little toilet cover and it caught it on fire and the whole bathroom was engulfed. Then shortly after that, we go camping and then I heard a bear. He cleaned fish in front of the cabin and he was sleeping in the car. He started killing in 1990, and he stopped in 95. The five years is not an isolated event, it was an escalation. I think he was groomed to be who he is. In the pines, in the pines, where the sun don't ever shine, I would shiver the whole night through. One of the biggest questions you're faced with when looking at the lives of serial killers is, where did it all begin? What makes a person become a killer? Is it something that's passed down through generations? Or is there a single moment that can turn someone from a normal human being with a job and a family into a monster? Are serial killers made or are they born? I'm Lauren Bright Pacheco, and this is Happy Face. I remember the first time I saw my father in prison, and the first thing he said to me was, Missy, do you want to know why? And at the time, I couldn't, I couldn't handle the answer, and honestly, I thought whatever he was going to tell me would be just him trying to justify what he's done or to minimize what he's done. And so I didn't want some pacifying answer. So I said no. And I've regretted that moment for so many years now because I want to know why. Why? 
why I thought my father had an interest in crime was because he wanted to become a police officer in Canada. He wanted to be a Mountie. And he was declined from becoming that because of an injury he sustained in high school. What he told me is that in gym class, they do this rope exercise where they climb the rope to the ceiling of the gym, which is quite high. They say now, when they interview killers, people who have been perpetually in jail, they have found that a large percentage of them had damaged their frontal lobe before they were 22, changes their whole personality. Um, Keith fell in high school. I believe it was 25 feet. He was on the very top of the rope and it let go. He fell to the gym floor. He sustained a head injury and broke his hip, and this impacted his ability to join the force. I don't believe my dad ever got over that. It was something that he carried on in conversations. Like There was a sense of resentment that he was now a long-haul truck driver when he could have had this other life that was just out of his grasp. But as Melissa's mom, Rose, told us, she really thinks that Keith was conditioned to be a killer, groomed to be one by his own father, Les. And that's something we felt we had to explore. From I, The Creation of a Serial Killer, by Jack Olson. The Jesperson children grew up in a rural atmosphere, first in Chilliwack, British Columbia, later 250 miles south in Salo, Washington an apple-scented orchard community of 10,000. Keith's perpetually mobile father built the family's Chilliwack home on land his ancestors homesteaded in 1909, moved the house from the city to a pastoral area outside of town, cleared five acres with a borrowed bulldozer, built a barn with a loft for his children, and a wooden bridge big enough for the family horses to cross the little creek that rose from the springs above the property line. Later, he dammed the creek, and built a water wheel to trap Chinook and silver salmon as they swam up from the Vedder River to spawn. If you read Jack Olson's biography of Keith, the way in which he describes Keith's father, Les, it's very clear that Les was a very resourceful, ingenious man, the kind of guy who could build a barn from scratch or create a water wheel to catch fish for dinner. But what also is clear is that he could be a monster. We decided that we didn't want to live near your grandfather anymore. Why? He was horrible. I hated him. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. He would, without warning, open up the door to our house, and he goes... Would you sleep with me? To you? To me. I had no idea. Yeah. Your father-in-law? Yes. Your father-in-law hit on you? Yes. More than once? Like oh, what? oh, yeah. I would be, I'd be sitting right next to Keith, and he would come and he would pinch me. And I was thinking, Keith, what are you doing? And then I'd see his hand, and they'd start giggling. I don't know who I was more angry with, Keith for not protecting me or for less for doing it. So you think Keith knew his father would make passes at you? Uh, Well, he was right there. 
and they thought it was a joke. And the only time I was saved is when I was pregnant with Melissa. Then I, I was off the tables. Keith's attitude towards marriage very much mirrored the relationship he saw unfold between his own father and his mother, Gladys. I mean, I knew that Les beat the kids a lot. I don't know if he beat Gladys or not, but I know that there was problems between Gladys and Les because when we were first married, Keith goes, I have to go down to the house. And I go, okay. So he went down to the house, came back, and he was really visibly upset. I said, so what went on? He goes, yeah, Mom and Dad got in a fight, and I guess Dad cut every telephone wire in the house. Was Les a drinker? Mm -hmm. He was a heavy alcoholic. Rothy's are the everyday flats for life on the go. They're stylish, comfortable, and go with everything from yoga pants to dresses and skirts. They've quickly become a most-loved, gotta-have-them brand, thanks to their wide range of colors and patterns, with new ones launching constantly. And there's zero break-in period. Since Rothy's are crafted using 3D knitting techniques and hand assembly, their seamless design means right-out-of-the-box comfort. Best of all, they're made from recycled plastic water bottles. That's right. Over 25 million water bottles have been diverted from landfills to make these gorgeous and sustainable shoes. Another major bonus? They're fully machine washable, so your pair will be fresh and ready every laundry day. Plus, Rothy's always come with free shipping and free returns and exchanges. There's no risk and no reason not to try. You'll quickly discover why BuzzFeed called them their forever shoes. Check out all the amazing styles available right now at rothys.com iHeart. Comfort, style, and sustainability. These are the shoes you've been waiting for. Head to rothys.com. That's R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash iHeart today. One of the few people that Keith opened up to about his childhood was a true crime author and psychologist named Al Carlisle. Melissa met him almost completely by chance. I was invited to go to CrimeCon, and this gentleman approached the booth and he said, hey, you know, I've, I've got this author who's working on serial killers. And he said, well, his name is Al Carlisle, and he studied Ted Bundy, and he's working on a chapter of the serial killer named Keith Hunter Jesperson. So when I got back home, I called him immediately. And I loved his perspective. He had stories that I've never even heard of before about the man I thought I knew. Unfortunately, the night before we were supposed to interview Al Carlisle, he passed away in his sleep. And it was heartbreaking. He was such a fascinating, brilliant man. But we were able to reach out to Stephen Booth, his publisher, and also to Carrie Ann Keller, who was his researcher and writing assistant. Keith felt that Al had a real mission to understand violent behavior. So that was their common ground. They each felt the other could provide valuable information. Once uh, Al was up there interviewing Keith, 
And Keith said to Al, I could reach over this table and snap your head before the guard would even notice. I don't because I don't want to lose my privileges. He wasn't threatening Al. He was just making a point about his size. Okay, so that's how you have to understand how Keith could talk. So it's like being in a room with a loaded gun. Oh, yeah, for sure. Definitely. You feel it. My name is Stephen Booth. I have been the publisher at Genius Book Publishing since 2011. Keith Jesperson was in a situation where he had a very manipulative father. The father, by the way, freaks me out. He had a very manipulative father. He was required to be obedient at all times. He was given conflicting information about what ethical standards were and how to behave. And he was isolated from his family, even by his own siblings. What's incredible, though, is that Al Carlisle's family gave us the tapes of his interviews with Jesperson in prison. And you can hear the intimate details and how much Keith opened up to him. Now, Brad was the older? Brad was the younger. Younger. Bruce was the Bruce oldest. Bruce is the oldest. Okay. When did they start calling you Igor? Igor was my uh, junior high. I was uh, in eighth grade, and then Brad was in seventh grade. And he wanted to be big with his friends, so he started calling me Igor because of the monster movies. And I figured I was his sidekick. Physically at that time. I was big physically at the time and slow. Slow physically? Well, I was. I was, I was big and I was yeah. not very well coordinated. Any learning problems? No, not really. So you're intelligent? I'm very intelligent, but I just didn't adapt myself to it. Keith was made to pay his own room and board when the other kids were not made to do that, so he would be an example to the other siblings. And this was when he was 12, 13 years old. Precisely, yes. You know, the father forced him to work. He got paid a pittance. Most of that money went back to room and board, and whatever was left over, the father basically took out of the bank account. And whenever he got into trouble, everybody pointed the finger at at, uh, Keith. His siblings did, his father did, his friends did. He was isolated, harboring a lot of resentment, violent rage-like resentment towards his father. and toward, I mean, he, what was that story about him, uh, the boy, when he was about eight years old, who kept blaming him for things, and then Keith let loose and tried to beat him to death? Oh, I have a memory of that kid. When you were very young? Yeah. He was just, he was, uh, every time uh, he'd, he'd say, well, Keith did this and Keith did that, and, and I'd get the belt, and I'd get nailed, and I'd get punished and so forth. He'd sit back, laugh, ha, 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 this is funny. And uh, one day uh, I caught him off the back there when he was ready to scream Keith did it, and I was beating him damn near to death. You were old. And I was about eight years old at the time. When you were beating the kid, did you feel you were in control? Did you just lose it with his so much? I just lost it. I didn't, I didn't, I don't think it had anything to do with control. It just had paybacks a bitch, you know. Yeah. And I just grabbed him and just started wailing on him. Of course, I didn't know when to stop. I was going to beat him to death. He was put in a position where he could not win. And he could not take his rage out on his father because his father had him dialed in. So he took his rage out on the closest person to him who was embarrassing him. 
<laughs> you know, I sure taught him a lesson. So even by the age of eight, there was a lot of anger. Yeah, there was anger there. <clears throat> anger. Yeah, you do me wrong. It was like, yeah, I was. You do me wrong. I was. I was gonna. I was bound and determined to get even. From I, The Creation of a Serial Killer, by Jack Olson. Sometimes the Jesperson males prowled the creek banks for muskrats. I'd yank one out of the water by its tail and throw it up on the bank. Then Dad or one of my brothers would club it to death. We also killed gophers, hundreds of them. They were a farm pest and nobody missed them. Dad has films of us boys blood splattered from killing gophers and other varmints. It was our form of recreation. After we grew up and got married, Dad liked to show the film to our wives. He would joke, watch my natural-born killers as they dispense of their victims. You don't want to run into them in a dark alley. Hey, it's Lauren Bright Pacheco. I love to combine listening to podcasts with exercise. It not only keeps me current on all the new binge-worthy shows, but makes burning calories much more entertaining. That's why I'm Happy Fabletics is partnering with Happy Face. It's a fashion-focused activewear brand founded by Kate Hudson that aims to empower women by making a healthy, active lifestyle accessible to everyone at an incredible price point. Fabletics is your one-stop shop for affordable athletic wear. They've got yoga, running, gym gear, sports bras, shoes, accessories, and more. Whatever your workout, Fabletics has you covered. You can get an entire Fabletics outfit for half the price of comparable places like Lulu or Athleta. And right now, Happy Face listeners can get two leggings for only $24. That's a $99 value by using the special link fabletics.com happyface. And you'll find new styles, collections, and prints every month, all with the Fabletics 45-day workout guarantee. Sweat it out for 45 days, and if it doesn't perform, return it for a full refund. All you have to do is go to fabletics.com slash happyface to take advantage of this deal now. That's fabletics.com slash happyface to get two leggings for only $24. There's no commitment to purchase monthly and free shipping on all orders over $49. Also, make sure you enter your email address when you take the style quiz to receive exclusive discounts and the inside scoop about new collections that haven't even been released yet. Again, that's fabletics.com slash happyface. Terms and conditions do apply. Based on their jailhouse interview, what did Al make of my dad's childhood? He was fascinated by his passivity, you know, Keith's passivity as a child. This uh, dichotomous behavior of a shy and passive child who becomes fully the opposite as an adult was very interesting to him. He understood how Keith was bitter about the control his father had over him. He knew he wasn't able to stand up to his father's dominance, but Keith accepted it, you know, as his lot in life. And he kind of liked it because, well, he did feel trapped by his father. He was afraid of his father, but he also had a strong desire to have his dad love him. I, I feared my grandfather. 
Like, even though he never hit me, I was terrified of my grandfather being angry with me because I don't know what he would do. Maybe even know about the motorcycle story. I do. I do. So he has this motorcycle, Keith, that he saved up money for. A brand new motorcycle. Okay, it's not a piece of junk like from cobbled together junkyard. And I had bought a, a 750 Honda motorcycle. It was a 74, brand new, gold and metallic orange, you know, like a bright orange color. It was a beautiful bike. And uh, it came hunting season. And I was working for Dad at the time. And Brad and I wanted to go hunting over on the coast by Klamath. Of course, we needed a four-wheel drive. And I was going to use the company pickup. Well, I said, Dad, can I use the company pickup? He says, sure, Keith, but... Uh, one stipulation, and I knew it was coming. And he said, you leave me your motorcycle so I can go on a motorcycle ride with that. And I said, no, because you're going to get drunk, and you're going to get on it, and you're going to wreck the bike. Oh, I promise, I ain't going to drink. And I said, no, yeah. <laughs> false promises, you know. I said, well, in order for me to get the pickup, I had to give him the bike. So I get the pickup and I load up and honey supplies and we take off over to Clam and we have a hell of a nice time all weekend long. I wake up in the morning on Monday morning and I go back to the dump truck in the backyard. We have a swimming pool to dig that day. And I walk through the back door and I say, where the hell's dad at? And we got this swimming pool to dig over here. And mom says, oh, you don't know. She says, he wrecked the motorcycle. He's in the hospital. And I guess Keith was on a hunting trip or something. Mm-hmm. What happened when he came back? Do you know? Well, then Keith had to run the businesses. He had to do everything. He was the sole provider for two families, his dad and mine, ours. And so I call up the company. The, the people that were going to do the swimming pool told me I wouldn't be there because my dad's in the hospital and I have to go take care of business. So I go to St. E's Hospital, and there is Dad up there on the floor, and he's they operated on ruptured spleen, his face is all bandaged up, cut his nose and dammer off. He hit a bob wire and cut up his intestines. He has a big scar, and he had a big scar in his face. I get up there, and he's like looking at me, and I said, "Well, what happened, Dad?" He says, "Keith, you gotta, you gotta get back to that motorcycle. You gotta, you gotta take care of all the evidence, Keith." You got to take care of it. I said, what? What do you mean you take care of it? He says, go get rid of it. I said, you've been drinking, don't you? He said, just take care of it. Well, he said, we don't want that insurance company knowing that I was riding drunk, right? Did Keith drink? No. No, it was absolutely like no alcohol. He was the only one out of all my aunts and uncles that didn't drink at all. Did I they? Just, like, grew up, you didn't drink either. You and Dad didn't drink at all in our growing up. No, because my father was an alcoholic, too, and so you either choose it or you don't, and I chose not to, and that's, your dad chose not to drink either. But I get up to my dad, and I step up to the hospital, and my mom is there, and I said, well, Dad, I got rid of all that, and he said, good, 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 and I said, now, why were you drinking on my, motor- my motorcycle? He says, I wasn't drinking on your motorcycle. Yes, you were, and he says, prove it. You can't prove it, so you got rid of all the evidence, so you can't prove shit. I'll give you a nickel for your quarter, more liquor for your water. I'll leave you drunk up on the rooftop. 
And that's basically how it all lines up. So everything is, I was covering up everything. How old were you then? Like I was like 18 at that time. Yeah. Les basically made Keith go hide the evidence so that he could get insurance money, that it didn't look You know, good. it wouldn't surprise me because Les was very famous for that. His business ethics of that was that the, the boss was always right and the employees were always wrong. Which meant the employee took the heat. Yes, it did, and I'm just getting to that. His, his idea was that if there's any problems that occurred on the job that I would get shit on and he would get the glory of saying I'm sorry or whatever like that. I'll, it'll never happen, you know, which I'll just make sure my son never does this stuff again. So I was like the bloody idiot, you know, doing all that. And I kind of laughed one day because my dad was on the backhoe and he was digging next to this house and he put the bucket right through the side of the house. He has no depth perception. That was one of his problems. And he stuck the bucket to the side of the house. And the people were in the house, and they were looking out, and they saw him running the backhoe, right? And uh, they come running out of the corner, but by the time they got around to where the backhoe was, he'd already stopped the machine, and he'd gotten me on that. And they were looking at him, and they looked at me, and I said, I did it. And they were like, why do you put up with that? And I said, that's the way it is. I am the, the, the shit on it. Less told him this is the way what you're going to say in court and Keith did in order for them to win a court case for the mobile so park lied in court. absolutely he did it seems like he wasn't the most honest man no no he wasn't he he'd swindle people I I called him a swindler and he had a really good lawyer my understanding is that how do I say this? Left to his own devices, Keith would have been a pretty happy kid. He described his childhood as being fairly happy. And um, he would have probably not harbored as much rage. He probably would have been somebody who got along with people. But from Al to me, from Keith to Al to me, his childhood was more a matter of he was the target. He was the scapegoat, for lack of a better word, of everybody's need to avoid Les's rage or manipulation or whatever it is. He had nobody backing him up. And he didn't even know how to back himself up. So all he could do was absorb all this negative energy about everything that was going on. One, two, three, one. with your dad about your grandfather made him go visit a friend of your grandfather's who was dying and your dad was really resentful because he had to go sit and make conversation with this dying man because your grandfather said nobody should have to die alone and your dad was talking to the guy before he realized he had already passed away I had no idea about this Dad still treated me like the run of the litter, Daddy's little helper. He dragged me to a nursing home to visit one of his hunting buddies. He said, 
My friend Smitty's not doing too good with his lung cancer, Keith. I'm going out in the hall. Talk to him, son. Nobody likes to die alone. I'm sitting there, listening to the rattly breathing, watching his life drain out. After a while, Smitty goes limp. I'm holding his hand for 10 or 15 minutes before I realize he's dead. On our way home, he said, Keith, someday you'll thank me for putting you through this. I never feared a dead person after that. When I was killing, I talked to my victims as if they were still alive. It was something to thank Dad for. My dad was really good about telling his story, his narrative, and he he beat everybody to the punch. And it would just, when his story came forward, people always judged everybody else's tale against what he had to say. My dad had ownership, like the truth was his. He owned the truth. And it was not debatable. His air of certainty definitely played a part in other people believing in him and why probably his, his victims believed in him and trusted him over their own voices. He exuded confidence and certainty and, and whatever he said was truth and you can rely upon it and, and you can trust it, but not really. I ask a question? Yes. Why, why is it that when Rose left Keith and took the kids, she went over to Les's house? What do you mean? The story that I got was when she left and emptied the house, the first place she went was Les's house. That is a direct quote from the history that I was reading this morning, and I can share that with you if you need me to. From from Keith? Yeah. Oh. Uh, that That's... That's that's the story that I got. It could, it could be wrong, but that's the story that, that Al got. That's interesting that he would say that. I was there. That didn't happen. Okay. I was there the day that they left. That would make sense that my dad would share that story to shame my mother and put her into that frame of light. Oh. I actually remember play by play, minute by minute of that day that they separated. And there was not one single time that we went over to my grandparents' house. Matter of fact, they were gone and there was not anything that we cleaned out on that property because we left in the four topaz, Mm -hmm. which is just a little family sedan. We didn't take a single item from that house other than the clothes that we needed for like a couple days. Wow. So that is not the story that I got from Al from Keith. Yeah. That's fascinating. So that's interesting that he came up with this this new story, a new spin. <laughs> what happened? Well, I'm glad I asked because uh honestly, I I I bought the story that Keith gave Al. You know, I mean it seemed reasonable. She left, she took everything with her, she went over to the father's house. Some of this is fantasy. Some of this is making Keith feel better about himself. So how truthful was he without? <laughs> now it's all right to lie. It's all right to to be conniving and so forth. You can you can do that because you're an adult. You know you can do that. But when you're a kid, you can't lie to your parents. You know. Because you know he called. You know he would call and talk yeah. to us. And I remember you comforting me after one particular phone call where um, we were living on A Street. Mm-hmm. 
over here and um, he called and said he was said he was suicidal because of having to pay child support and then he because <laughs> it, it was such a burden for him mm -hmm. and it made me upset because I felt blamed. He's mm -hmm. blaming me for having to pay child support. But then it went another step further. He said, um, you know, I drove past the prison today, the Oregon State Prison. I just, like, chewed my horn and said, I'll be there soon. That's what he said in the, the call. But I remember crying and going to my room. And you came after me. And you're like, what, what's wrong, Melissa? And I said, you know, Dad said he's going to kill himself. And you got so mad. <laughs> You got so bad. You stormed out of my room. You called him back up and you said, you, you son of a bitch. <laughs> I heard you, like, that was the first time I ever saw you mad. You're like, because I really felt the whole time he was playing on us. You know, I got paid child support. So you guys separated in 1990. Mm -hmm. And then he... How did you find out in 1995? Mm -hmm. Didn't you receive a letter from him? I received a letter maybe a week before he got arrested. And in this letter, it said, Rose, um, what I did is bigger than O.J. Simpson. He said, I'll probably be in hell forever, Keith. And I thought, you are so full of crap. I mean, like, it's... What's this supposed to mean, right? Shredded to pieces, threw in the trash. It was directly to you. It was directly to me. And it didn't say anything about us kids. It just was like... I did something bigger than O.J. Simpson. Gentle women Don't you know God is a man Happy Face is a production of How Stuff Works. Executive producers are Melissa Moore, Lauren Bright Pacheco, Mangesh Hatikador, and Will Pearson. Supervising producer is Noel Brown. Music by Claire Campbell, Paige Campbell, and Hope for a Golden Summer. Story editor is Matt Riddle. Audio editing by Chandler Mays and Noel Brown. Assistant editor is Taylor Chacoin. Special thanks to Phil Stanford, the publishers of the Oregonian newspaper, and the Carlisle family. Have you ever wondered, how do the smartest marketers cut through the noise? I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. And on my new show, Math & Magic, I'm sitting down with the day's most gifted disruptors. When I did this, people thought I was crazy. There are really no other rules aside from, you know, no full frontal nudity. Go out there and do it. I don't like to follow the trend of things. Listen and subscribe to Math & Magic on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hi, I'm Chelsea Handler, and I'm launching a brand new podcast with iHeartRadio called Life Will Be the Death of Me. And I'm going to talk to all these different people. My BFF, Mary McCormick. That's what we should call my book tour, The Apology <gasps> Tour. Great idea. I'm sorry, everyone. That's what I'm this s- whole podcast should be called, The Are, Apology it Tour. It should be called With the Orange because of the orange theme of the book. Yeah. Aren't you glad I went to therapy? <laughs> <laughs> Life Will Be the Death of Me with Chelsea Handler. Listen and subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts.